You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. On the show today, we've got quite a few guests coming in, not quite as many as last week. Last week was a trifle manic, even by my standards. But um, we're going to be catching up with Miss Itchy. Uh, they're uh, presenting Miss Itchy's Larvae Lounge. Uh, at the Butterfly Club. Uh, also coming up, the production company uh, putting on the classic musical West Side Story at uh, kicking off at the Art Centre in the State Theatre this weekend. So we're going to chat with Ken Mackenzie Forbes, the artistic director of the production company, about West Side Story as a show, uh, and also about the company, because this is their 50th production, bit of a landmark. Ace and Ty are coming in for our Art Attack segment a little bit later on, reviewing a new exhibition, as is their want. On the new theatre front, we're going to find out about a production called Cuckoo at 45 Downstairs. Playwright Jane Miller and director Alice Bishop will be joining us. Uh, Also, Elbow Room are presenting a new work, We Get It, as part of the MTC Neon Festival of Independent Theatre. And Elbow Room's co-founder and co-director Emily Tomlins will be joining us uh, at 11 today to talk about that work together with Rachel Perks, who's the creative consultant for We Get It. Plus, the Gertrude Street Projection Festival is kicking off tomorrow. If you uh, have travelled down Gertrude Street in the last night or two, you may have already seen some of the projections being tested. Uh, So we're going to chat to the festival director of Gertrude Street Projection Festival later this morning. And because Cerise Howard is overseas, jaunting about Eastern Europe yet again collecting films for the Czech and Slovak Film Festival which is the artistic director of we're instead going to have another conversation a different conversation about screen culture with the director of Webfest uh, and so Steinar Ellingson will be joining us at 11.30 today to talk about Webfest, which is a festival div- devoted to online web series and the like. So all that and more on the show this morning. Do hope you can stick around. You're tuned to Smart Arts here on Triple R, and my first guests for the morning have joined me in the studio, Linda Hagger and Faye Younger. Together are Miss Itchy, the Barry Award-winning comedic duo who get four- and five-star reviews from all over the world and the occasional one-star review from the Herald Sun this year. Yay, that's the winning one. (laughs) That's one to bronze and put on your door, isn't it? And we have. (laughs) The very fact that you've put it on your media release delights me because (laughs) it's kind of like... Clearly you were perhaps slightly stunned and surprised given that you've got this adulation from around the world and then hometown newspaper... Right. Oh, I don't know. Hometown newspaper of a certain ilk... Yes. I think if we'd got a five-star review, we'd be going, oh, what have we done wrong? Yeah, what, have we, what are we doing What do we do? Yeah, We've yeah. mucked up. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> how long has Miss Itchy been around now? Oh, that's such an embarrassing question. Yeah. I was a fetus, so it's been... Last year was our 20th anniversary, but we took 14 years off. <laughs> so it's like we're new again. Reborn. Yes. That means we would only be doing it five years. You're a fool. (laughs) Yeah, we kind of only did. I guess so. (laughs) I thought it was all of the 90s. 
No, we didn't start until late 90s. We're just going to have a fight over here. Back, That's it. I'll interject any time. I'll just step away We're from the corner. We're a little bit disappointed because we couldn't actually get Miss Itchy out of the <laughs> bunks in the caravan to come in. We rattled the caravan, we shook the annex, couldn't get them up, but we wrangled them, so we know them quite well. <laughs> um, one is Miss Gerda and the other's Miss Candy Girl. And the pretty we one's Miss Candy Girl. Threatened to hook up their caravan and tow it around Killside. <laughs> they wouldn't get out of bed. So no. you have a relationship with them, kind of like, uh, I don't know, the relationship between Dame Edna and her occasional manager, Barry Humphrey. Yeah. yeah, we don't manage them. Nobody oh, no, manages no. them. No, that's real. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a little bit like yes, that. It's, it's an arm's length respect. Just and over here fear. is fine. Or fear. Yeah. I don't know about respect. I do not respect <laughs> those two. How did these characters come about? When did? What was the, the original inspiration for this particular style of comedy? Well... It was the stuff that made us laugh, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it is. It's the dark and, and um, perhaps dangerous stuff that you couldn't normally say. And it started out with a guy that was well-known around Melbourne as a comedy writer and stand-up, John Harevam, and we formed a trio called The Three Beards. Uh, we didn't form it. He made us do it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Very he different. said it was a great <laughs> social experiment or something. I'm going to wear an orange bag on my head, he said. Just turn up. Just turn up. Oh, my yeah. God. He did, and he made us do the three he beards. He made us do the three beards, and it was terrifying. We did it at the ESPY on a Sunday afternoon. We did it in some weird billiard place in, in the city. Yes. I remember they wouldn't let John upstairs because he was wearing Terry Towling shorts and thongs. That's right. He said, <laughs> it's part of my costume. <laughs> And he made me wear a bit of trellis on my hip. Apparently, it's something to do with having a passion fruit, fruit vine growing over me. So yeah, but that's it was where it's really weird. Um, <laughs> and then he said, "See you later, world. I'm heading out," and did, <laughs> and left us behind to pick up the pieces. Yeah, exactly. So and we ditched the trellis and got some taffeta, and off we went. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And since then, this kind of deranged duo have, mm. as you say, tw- uh, tw- well, now a 21-year career with mm. time off for good behaviour. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and doing a show at the Butterfly Club, that yes. elegant home of kitsch in the heart of the CBD. Isn't it gorgeous? Oh, I love it. Every time I go, I, I think I take as much delight in sitting in the Butterfly Club and watching vis- visitors responding to what they, they yeah, see yeah. on shelves, whether it's the games or the strange creatures made of shells with little googly eyes or yes. all the those different bits and pieces, but you're presenting Miss Itchy's Larvae Lounge, which yes. is a continuation of the, of the chat show kind of shtick that you've been doing for a little while. Yes, we did a show in 2014 comedy festival called Late Night Larvae, and it was late. It was too late for some old ladies, <laughs> meaning us. Um, and we did it from that. Yeah, we, we've we've done a few in between. Yeah, we've, we've had, like, a guest in these bizarre little shows that we do and we really liked that element because it's so risky and they're usually so frightened. <laughs> and they're such a clash to the itchy type yeah. of people because Miss Itchy do needs some, oh, for want of a better word, normal people around them to... To highlight. To highlight just how awkward they are. are. (laughs) Yeah, they're a bit special. So, yeah, that's really where it came from, just doing these, having these little five-minute chat segments in the middle of a a much more structured and and, um, 
bizarre show and we just loved it so we wanted to push that a bit more so we have mm, so now we're doing a chat show with two or more guests yeah um this last week we had adam richard mm, and i've even forgot oh fiona, fiona scott norman and that was great and this week we have geraldine quinn mm-hmm and Wes Snelling yep. as our guests, and they're going to sing. So the guests have done a little piece. They've sung or bought a show and tell along. And uh, Fiona bought an album last week of Rolf Harris. Yes, Mary's Boy Child, I think Mary's it was like. Boy Child, it was called. That's right. <laughs> so that derailed into something fiery, as you can imagine. Yeah, it did. Creepy in retrospect. <laughs> Creepy, yep. Yeah, creepy at the time. So for Miss Itchy, as when Miss Itchy take to the stage, how much of, uh, of your performances are improvised? How much is structured to make it look like improvisation? Usually it's heavily structured. Like we really write. We write the shit out of something. Um, but this time it's way looser. Yeah, and it feels very odd. It's really odd. But it opens lo- up, yeah. yeah, it opens up to <laughs> some exciting stuff. Because we kept looking at each other going, we're off script. Oh, that's right, we haven't got one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a panic at first. Yeah, it really was. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and we, we often, and again, we have this time, we have Tim Harris with us. The urbane Tim Harris. Oh, the Melbourne's very wordsmith, Mr. Yes. Tim Harris, yes. Doctor Reverend. Yes, he is, a, and actually, Doctor Reverend Tim Harris. That's his real title, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, if we want to get married at off the any internet, point during the show, you've come to the right show. You have, yes. And he is bizarre and odd, and he adds his own flavour into everything, and kind of keeps Miss Itchy in line. Kind of. Kind of. With a stick. <laughs> yeah. I have this image of kind of like a, a frightened lion tamer. Yeah. <laughs> the notion of going off script for, yeah. for, for comedy, how much of that has been made possible just because you know these characters so well and you've rehearsed so much and written so much in the past that now that you've laid down that for a 20-year foundation of structured material you've now been able to go off script because you've got that history and that yes, base exactly. behind you. Yes, exactly. We know the characters we know so well. inside out. We know their history inside out. We made a... Well, sorry, yes. they have a history. <laughs> There's a backstory for yeah. both of them. We know it intensely. and So, yeah, the, it is it is easier to, to stay in character and, and go for a wander and not be too frightened that you're not going to be able to scramble back on shore. Yeah. And if you don't, like, I got... A little bit lost last week with Did a you? warm biscuit, I remember. And I, you, no, it was fine. It was fine. a little lost, but fine. I thought it made it funnier. How terrified are your guests? Oh, usually they're. It's really, really interesting because we, the segment that we've had in the past for chat has been called a very strident title that I can't repeat. Um, but we've caged them. So it's been special guest in the cage, let's call it. Um, and just that that um, confinement of being in this loosely flimsy structure that we've called a cage is really terrifying because there's no way out. Mm. But we haven't got the cage this time. No, we did um, away with the cage. We've still got Hitler's beef chair because we're not stupid. Right. Um, We've also got Pot's potato poof. We do. If somebody has just tuned in, those <laughs> those phrases alone are going to have them going, what on earth is this show? Right. But they'll have a good laugh as they wonder. 
that's always important. <laughs> so yeah, now that, that we've, we've just got the chair and the poof that uh, sort of contain them, but we're still, you know, as as loose and climby and a little bit right. dangerous. Right. We also, admittedly, we do um, plan some special segments within. Oh yeah. Some we make our own um, commercials. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we have them, a little commercial write break. them. It's an excuse uh, for us to show sketches we've shot. <laughs> well, we make them into commercials, and and we have a couple of little uh, surprise packages, some stunts. I'm building some larvae this week. Oh, you are too. A <gasps> larvae lamp. That's right. Mm. 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 We like grubs. Can you tell? Mm. I kind of got the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Grubs and shellfish. I don't know what the connection is, but no. God, we love a bit of shellfish. We do love shellfish action. Miss Candy Girl's got a, a. Is it a yabby? Yes, it's that a yabby. In her handbag. Her name is Colette Dinigan. Yep. She's lovely. And she's got really strident views about fat women in clothes. Yes, she keeps very well too. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Itchy's Larvae Lounge is on every Friday in July, 10.30pm at the Butterfly Club, 5 Carson Place, just off Little Collins Street in Melbourne. More info at thebutterflyclub.com. Special guests every week, every Friday night in July. Uh, I've been chatting with the uh, the creators of uh, Miss Gerda and Miss Candy Girl, Linda Hager and Faye Younger. Thank you both so much for joining us. Oh, hey, thanks thank for having us. Thank you, Richard. And we'll say hi to the you know the fat tarts in taffeta for you. Please do. wants with you here taking you through till midday today with another edition of smart arts coming up in about 15 minutes time it'll be our art attack segment talking about a new exhibition on in melbourne but right now we're going to talk about something both new and old the production company are a a melbourne company who have uh, been around for many years and about to stage their 50th production of the classic musical West Side Story. Joining us in the studio to uh, bring us up to speed on the production, uh, we have Ken Mackenzie Forbes, the Artistic Director of the production company. Ken, thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's a great pleasure, Richard. Great pleasure. So for, for people who've not seen West Side Story before, they may know that it's uh, an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, right. but yep. set in uh, in New York. Yes, on the West Side, and set in the 1950s when racial tensions were running high. It's about two gangs. Uh, one is uh, the Jets, and the other is the Sharks. And the um, Sharks are a Puerto Puerto Rican group of migrants that have come into New York City and the Jets are sort of like the local lads and their girls and there's real tension between them and it is the the story of Romeo and Juliet but they are the Montagues and the Capulets and it's the the love story that you know Tony meets Maria, Romeo meets Juliet, there's a balcony scene and then there's conflict, they have a rumble and, and then they... You know, murder takes place, uh, but it's it, it is exquisitely beautiful music. It's Leonard Bernstein's, just in my mind, his most more it is his most memorable and most successful score. And with uh, lyrics by Sondheim, uh, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. I think um, Leonard Bernstein had a hand in the lyrics as well, according to the legend. But certainly uh, Stephen Sondheim, and he uh, he was encouraged 
encouraged to do the lyrics at that time to sort of um, uh, to get more into the musicals. And then Arthur Lawrence wrote the book, and of course Jerome Robbins. He, it was his idea to do the musical originally, he and Bernstein. And originally, I think it was to be between Catholics and Jews because they were also because um, groups where there was plenty of tension in New York City. But um, it's Jerome Robbins is credited as being sort of the driving force behind it all. And, and it was his it was his direction and choreography. And, and you're recreating production. that choreography for yes, this production. Yes, yes, it sort of comes with the territory. <clears throat> the normal thing with West Side Story is that you do include the Jerome Robbins choreography, uh, the estate that looks after uh, the licensing of West Side Story requires that you do that choreography. Although I believe in Berlin now, for the <clears throat> for the first time, there's a production there that does not feature Jerome Robbins' choreography. But he's it's it's, it's the most masterly choreography you could wish to see in a musical and it's um, quite brilliant to stage it. Now why stage this musical now in Australia? Is Are the, the I guess the tensions, the racial tensions that it explores, for example, still relevant uh, to well, Melbourne today? Well, racism, as we know, is, is a big issue today. It has been for thousands of years, and I'm sure it will go on being for a, very, a long time yet. And so any drama that deals with uh, racism and love between two people from different racial groups is, 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 is in a, a very stimulating and sort of um, cathartic almost. Um, entertainment and in a musical it works absolutely brilliantly now to step back from the production for a moment for listeners who aren't that familiar with the production company it's a somewhat unique model for yes. uh, an arts presenting company it is, it is indeed it's got a lot of uh, features about it that are unique it's based loosely on the encore series in new york city which is a company that for many years has been presenting three musicals a year at the city center in new york and that's where the inspiration came from uh, just um, 18 years ago now since we actually started the company and we do three musicals a year in the Arts Centre, two of them in the State Theatre and the third one either in the Playhouse or in Hamer Hall. And they're short seasons and they're intense seasons and it's uh, entirely privately funded. It's... Um, it, the, the intention is to, number one, entertain Melbourne audiences, which it does splendidly, and then to provide opportunities for artists in musical theatre living in Melbourne, and it does provide a lot of employment during the year, and um, also to feature... Uh, two streams of works um, the classic Broadway musicals that you don't see although there is an increasing interest on the part of commercial promoters now in delving into and also classic musicals and also Opera Australia as well yes Opera Australia um, but also we do feature some new musicals to Australia like um, uh, we did uh, the first production of Grey Gardens in Australia which was the story of the Bouviers and then this next musical after West Side Story is an Australian premiere. It's a, a, a new musical base that features the music of the Gershwins. Uh, nice work if you can get it. And that will be an Australian premiere. So we like to mix and match and it works very well. Now, am I right in thinking that you were the inaugural artistic director of uh, the production company, well, went away for a while and then came back? Well, no, that's not quite right. I've always been a director okay. of the production company, but I was very involved at the start. Um, but then the management uh, we handed, Rachel Taylor came in as general manager and I just remained as a consultant for a few years there. And then um, 
uh, Rachel wanted to have some time off, so I said I would um, help in a more hands-on way, which I've been doing now for about 10 years. So <laughs> it's, it, it, it's a partnership that works uh, splendidly between Rachel Taylor and myself as the two executives that are running the company. We only have a very small administration, uh, and um, but we do have 7,000 subscribers and we do do very good business. This West Side Story is doing tremendous business. Oh, I'm not surprised. It is It is really one of the it's, landmark it musicals. Is, it again. is one of the best, yes. Uh, it's being directed... Uh, by Gail by, Edwards. Yes. The acclaimed Gail Edwards, and she's the most wonderful, stimulating director. She's got all sorts of brilliant... Well, she brings a unique brilliance with her, and she's very demanding, and she's very bright, and she can really inspire performers to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do on stage. And speaking of performers, you said that one of the, the missions for the production company is to give employment to graduates yes, of musical theatre and right. so forth. Yes. And we've seen a real, over the last, well, particularly, say, since 1999, uh, when I believe the production company began. That's right, began, that was our first season, yes. Um, th- there's been a real growth in uh, uh, graduates of musical theatre right. courses That's at true. Whopper, the VCA, That's right. That's Brisbane right. Conservatorium. That's right. That's right. It's quite wonderful how many, uh, how much young talent there is out there now. And in, in some ways, it's really disappointing when you do auditions for a musical and you can only select 20 for the ensemble, but really you'd love to be able to afford to bring in 40 because the talent is there for these shows now because of what's coming through the schools and the, and the uh, universities. But... Um the other wonderful thing about it is that the level of excellence now in these musicals on stage is much, much higher than it was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. So. Now, uh, to come back to West Side Story as a production, uh, people m- will probably know, even if they don't know the musical as a, as a whole, they'll be familiar with some of the, uh, some of the songs, Maria, That's right. um, Tonight, Tonight um, yes, Somewhere, uh, uh, and America, which is... America, the, the, America's a, a real showstopper, and yeah. we've got a wonderful um, Anita, we have Diane Zanotto, and she can sing it, and she dances up a storm with her ensemble with this number, it's a fantastic number. The production company's production of West Side Story is on from the 11th of July until the 19th of July at Art Centre Melbourne in the State Theatre. If you would like to book, you can go to artcentremelbourne.com.au and or alternatively phone 1300 182 183. You can also go to theproductioncompany.com.au for more information about the company, this current season of West Side Story and the upcoming productions as well. We've been speaking with uh, the company's artistic director, Ken McKenna. Forbes. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Clutching our chests and staggering around, um, uh, art attackish. We are going to <laughs> think about visual art instead. Um, Ty Snaith. Hello. Ace Wagstaff. Good morning. <laughs> You've been seeing a new exhibition that's slightly off the beaten path, I do believe, about well, a very significant figure in Australian music, art, I, culture. 
I guess it depends which beaten path you walk all the time, That's true. Well, CBD and (laughs) inner city. If you live in Brighton, then it would be well and truly on your beaten path because it's right near, well, it's the Bayside cultural... Even if you don't, I've got to dispute that. Like, (laughs) it's not that far out of the city. It's not actually, It's only 20 minutes on the train and it's only about 10 minutes (laughs) between two train stations. It's it's off my beaten path. Yes, okay. (laughs) I don't go to Brighton very often. (laughs) Oh, you totally should. (laughs) Well, it turns out that some very famous... People grew up in mm. Brighton, um, or were born in Brighton. Shouldn't say I should say. Uh, Percy Granger was born in Brighton, which I never knew until seeing this exhibition. Um, I, yeah, after seeing this exhibition, I realised that prior to it, my my knowledge of Percy Granger was very very limited. Was it? Yes. I've always known about him because of the museum. Did you know it was his birthday yesterday? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, that's it's timely, isn't it? Oh my goodness, they didn't even. Tell me that no, when I, was I there. went yesterday. Yeah. Percy Granger was born oh, on the spooky. 8th of July. Oh, well, so, happy birthday. Uh, in 1882. Yeah. Composer, arranger, pianist. Yeah. Um, a crazy, eccentric, amazing kind of. Polymath. Yeah, po- polymath. polymath. Yeah. yeah. Well, because he designed clothes, for example. He did. Oh. He had, and he collected things as well. He had this he was, amazing. He was a real Renaissance man, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the, the, the great thing about this exhibition is that uh, um, they've started with the premise that he was born in Brighton, and so the Bayside hmm. Arts and Culture Centre. Is that technically what it's called? Yeah, Bayside it's, gallery. it's the gallery at the Bayside Arts and Culture Centre. So yeah. they've constructed this show, which has taken obviously a lot of effort and work around the idea that, you know, he's a brighter night. Um, I love that, brighter night. I should technically brighter night. Um, <laughs> but he, so, you know, everyone knows there was the Percy Granger um, Museum mm. where he he created this museum while he was still alive and then it, it went on and he has collections of a whole lot of amazing stuff like mm. folk um, instruments uh, costumes stitching he had this I- interest that sprawled across so many different sort of things and ideas but then on top of that he was multi-talented mm. himself and so for the show they've well, you, they've I, had access to all these things so so some of his things are curated into the exhibition alongside new works made by a series of Melbourne artists. Mm, and this is a real teasing exhibition. You know, it gives you a little bit of information and then you, you really seek out more. Mm. Um, yeah, what I... Uh, after exploring these several veins of interest that he had, it wasn't so much that I think that he was really spectacularly fantastic at, at any of them. And he writes this in his letters that he doesn't think that he is, at least when starting out. Mm. But he has so much persistence. Mm. Um, and obviously sort of like zest and curiosity. And, mm, yeah. um, and also wasn't afraid to be doing that. I think No, not at all. A and big it's, part you know, of that. I'm, I'm just going to keep doing this until I get really good at it. It didn't seem to care what people labelled him as. No. I mean, in one, you know, in one stance, He's known for the composition of, what is it, the British Country Gardens Waltz or something <laughs> like that. Like, that's what he's most famous for. And yet the majority of his music that he made was completely experimental and kind mm. of out there. Well, so, he, he was even interested in music machines, yeah. sort of like artificial composition, for there's, example. Yeah. There's some great drawings in the show that are by ha- him by hand, um, and they're sort of gouache and pencil drawings of, like, the, my favourite was a Singer sewing machine adapted into a music machine, but then they're annotated in this crazy, like, massive little notes and sketches and it's mm. they're so beautiful and then a whole lot of sort of he'd do these drawings of cross sections of decomposed machines so yeah. almost engineered you know engineering and the machines sketches. have such a fanciful quality as well they're mm. almost drawn uh, you know in, in cross section as you mentioned this layout for either ease of construction or mm. just ease of viewing in the mind um, but you know they, they look like at the same time these flamboyant uh, 
uh, Da Vinci machines. Or, yeah, but they're also know. they've also got something a little bit naive and folky about them, which yeah, is yeah, he's obviously like his charm. From Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, yeah. you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the 70s version. And so, I mean, the, the big part about this show is that they've curated and commissioned a series of contemporary works um, in response to to his life and mm. his his um, body of well, massive body of work. Uh, and there's some really good people in the show. So mm. um, one of the standouts for me was Dylan Martel's um, amazing kind of costumes that he has based on, I guess, his experience in experimental music as a, as a realm, but performance and that sort of eccentricity of Granger comes through. But I think also in looking at and researching and working with other cultures as well. Mm, that's true, actually. Yeah. He has a real interest in that. So so there's a series of, what, maybe five or six of these full-body-sized mm. um, outfits that he's made out of everything you could possibly imagine. This so, kind of plastic Provera, this, like, detritus <laughs> of everyday yeah. life, you know? Yeah, and some flashing lights and, like, a you know, soccer half a soccer ball, you know, polyfilled onto an elbow as a pad and the then, con- you know, Cash converter's sales sticker hasn't been taken <laughs> off the vacuum cleaner that forms the right leg. And, so good. Yeah. I love Dylan's work. And I just think in the context of Percy Granger's um, life, it's it's really appropriate and obviously mm. inspired, if not directly, but but through a time of growing up in Melbourne as a response to, you know, that life. I'm sure he would have seen his work before and as an experimental musician as well, yeah. um, be influenced by that. And just that way. idea of making it happen and, and not hiding the materials from what you're creating. Like, mm. in, I think there's a, a drum kind of totem in the corner of that room where Dylan's work is that he's constructed and on top is a, a, a can of expanding foam that's kind of <laughs> ebbing out or Just has ebbed over. out and that's, that forms a lot of the you know the construction process for his figures as well yeah and it kind of reminds me of his his drawing machines how they they incorporate other machines like you said the sewing sewing yeah. machine as a percussive instrument and there's no hiding that you know it is what it is it's and almost it, it proudly can form two functions yeah. yeah it's almost like proudly on display but what i love about it is that it adds this sort of sense of humor and humanism that you know oh, absolutely he, he's known for the other artists uh in the show that that stood out for me were um alistair mcclucky who's um you know, quite an interesting young Melbourne artist who often does sort of beaded works and he- heavily laboured, like almost, um, oh, I guess you could say... Uh, well, well, how do you explain <laughs> the type of his work? They're sort of based in very old traditional imagery. Means, yeah, yeah. he's interested in, I think, a lot of folk kind mm. of image making as well. And I think there's a lot of crossover with Grange's work and his interest in kind of these, these grassroots traditionalist... Um, but then making them new. Explorations of culture, yeah. And then yeah. Alistair's, what he's got on show are these books that are all open sort of to a page and they're they're col- they're really quick well they seem really quick collages mm. over sort of painted grids that re- like a they seem like a series of references to make new works or bigger mm. works but in themselves this collection is a body of really interesting work some of the collages yeah. i found really disturbing and really kind of appealing <laughs> at the same time um and then also the way that they were positioned um uh, and we should say this that the the curator it's julie skate is that right oh julie skate i can't she I can't. has done an amazing this job. exhibition is yeah quite incredible just in in terms of contemporary curating and the, yeah, the drawing the, of influences and this cross-cultural connection especially across time from Percy Granger to 
to now. It's, yeah, it's, it's almost fantastic. Like, it's almost like they're all in the now, which is yeah. which is quite an amazing thing to do. I mean, in some ways, it's because Percy Granger lived before his time, or in a in, you know in an interesting way back then, mm. which is now I guess relevant. But the way that she's positioned them without having to draw parallels in text, mm. you know, so next to Alexander, um, sorry. Alastair, Alastair McClucky's yep. note. Next to his oh. um, collages, there's this piece that Percy Granger did of sort of... The boats. The boats, yeah. yeah. This yeah. huge framed kind of assemblage of like different... Magazine covers, news articles, yeah. photographs of these four-mast sailing ships, yeah. which were, you know, the, the most modern sailing vessels at, at the, the time. time. And now look just like this kind of crazy, (laughs) you know, obsessive hoarding of images, which so many artists can relate to, you know, and position that next to Alistair's, which is so contemporary and from fashion magazines Mm. and sort of like... um, And again, it's this cross-sourcing of contemporary ideals. Mm. I really loved Rebecca uh, Moynihan's Mm. um, sculptural table, and it's this arrangement of formalist geometric kind of abstracted shapes and forms, uh, different materials... Um, and at first I thought that was all it was, and I thought that was great because referenced a lot of the colour schemes and shapes and forms from uh, Percy's they, work. But they represent sound compositions, they, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they represented sound composition, uh, compositions. So it was like a, a three-dimensional song. mobile yeah, song or, or um, uh, you know, written composition, but written in objects, not in uh, really cool. you know, pen on paper, yeah. um, 2D. Yeah, it was amazing. And then you could kind of navigate this song three-dimensionally with, uh, you know, with technology, with a mouse and a computer system, mm. so that as you virtually navigated your way through this sculpture field, this kind of like Zen garden of abstract shapes, you were you were endowed with different uh, tonalities and sounds and songs. Mm. The exhibition that uh, these two are fervently discussing is called <laughs> Midwinter Masters Percy Granger in the Company of Strangers, and it's on now until the 9th of August. Mm. There's, uh, there's lots of time. the Gallery at Bayside Arts and Cultural Centre in Brighton. There's a couple of other works or bodies of work in the show um, that I guess use a more traditional tropes so Kate Tucker's paintings which are all I mean they're all painting on technically paintings on canvas but when you look closer they're sort of reconstructed canvases where she's sort of digitally printed some of them then cut them up sewn them together re-stretched that canvas then painted over it in about uh, what looks like 10 different types of materials masked sections so these paintings that are created by layers layers upon layers of different meaning which when you sort of take apart a song, I guess, or his life, there's so many different layers mm. of texture and um, comp- just just that crazy composition. Like he's obviously a genius at composition mm. in so many different aspects. And I think Kate's paintings really successfully distill that into a series of signs, or or even into a series of uh, an object. You know, yeah. a two-dimensional yeah. plane, which is not an easy thing to do. No, but um, she's created what is it? Maybe six or seven um, framed works. The framed works, there's uh, six on one side and three on the other, I think. Yeah, yeah and they're sort of, I mean, in so many ways they're traditional paintings, but then even just the way that they're hung on an angle to make, so yeah. they're perfect square framed works, but then they're hung to be diamonds, which is just a simple way of off-putting a tradition or off-putting a, um, uh, an understa- understood language, which well, I guess he's all about as well. And you know? it could also be a reference to his sexual proclivities as well. He was, yes. he was a little mm. bent. 
a, a little, little bit, bit. Yeah, a little yeah. bit in a, in a good way, I think. I mean, that's the bit that's probably yeah. Ace's favourite part of the show, isn't it? The oh, sealed really? part. <laughs> well, I, was, got, I got sent a text that seemed very excited when you experienced it. Was, it was just a surprise to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and it's always nice to see an artist spot in an exhibition. Yeah, it's like, it is. Wow. Okay. Especially great. from that time. Um, but what I really loved about it was how, um, you know, how personal it was because mm. he, he did have this sexual life which included elements of BDSM and which oh, would handmade otherwise whips. handmade whips and learn how to develop photographs so that he wasn't you know subject public, public scrutiny mm. and um, ostracized from polite society at the time um, but yeah he, he bundled all these curios up in a bank vault and asked that it not be opened until 10 years after his death for fear of disrepute mm. and um, I think that's really sweet you know that's really that's so nice cool. that's something you know there's no there's no there shouldn't be any guilt or shame in pleasure but um, you know that's a really nice touch that but what I loved is that he didn't just do it and then hide it away no, it was always no. intended to be seen it and was always intended to come out yeah. yeah part of the documentation of his life which yeah. is yeah. why there is the the Percy Granger Museum at Melbourne Conservatorium uh, yeah. up at Melbourne University and of course this exhibition which as we said is on at the gallery uh, at Bayside Arts and Cultural Centre bayside.vic.gov.au is and, the website and we really only talked about half the works but I know we don't have time so uh, you know there's a series of other really well thought out works like um, Darren Sylvester's work in the show is really kind of haunting and mm. actually plunged me into a severe sort of <laughs> existential crisis for the rest of the afternoon. Oh dear. But no, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I think that's any work that can can do that is quite powerful. I mean, that video work I, in I the show is a bit pretty... like an existential joke. So I was I was existentially laughing all afternoon. Well, that's but, good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think even just thinking about someone's life like that as Absolutely. an artist, thinking about the way that you can, you know, that legacy. I guess, mm. that you leave. Percy Granger is a really good one because he, he sort of shows us that we can live this life that is multifaceted. Yeah, that never stops questioning or practising. That's right. Or, yeah, and then be learning. meaningful in the future. Yeah. You know. uh, and we should also mention there's an intro to contemporary art, Percy Granger in the Company of Strangers Tour and Talk, and that's on Saturday the 1st of August from 3 to 4pm. And there's more details on the website. Yeah, I think Darren Sylvester will be speaking and so will Kate, Kate Tucker, Tucker about her yep. paintings and I, I think Julie, the curator as well. So that would be a good thing to get along and to. And as I said, it's one of the most fantastically curated shows yeah. I've seen in a while. Um, and it's you know, free. I could have spoken just about the curation alone. <laughs> Julie Skate, you did an amazing job. But Hats it's free off. as well, so go, so go down and check it out. And uh, uh, the opening hours, Wednesday to Friday, 11am till 5pm. Saturdays and Sundays, 1pm till 5pm. Uh, the Gallery at Bayside Arts and Cultural Centre. Uh, corner of Carpenter and Wilson Streets in Brighton, bayside.vic.gov.au for more information about the exhibition at Percy Granger in the company of strangers. Ty, <laughs> thank you very very much for a, a rather detailed e- discussion about what sounds like a really great exhibition. So, oh, Thank you. Catch you in a fortnight's time. See, See you ya. Then. talk about a new theatre production that is uh, running at 45 downstairs uh, from I believe it previewed last night and is running through until the 26th of July. It's called Cuckoo. Uh, it's written by Jane Miller, the playwright who joins me in the studio now. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Richard. And directed by Alice Bishop. Hello, Alice. Hi, Richard. So, uh, how was your first preview? It was great. Yes. Like, it's always completely 
scary and frightening to get to that point where, you know, you do your last dress rehearsal and then you go, oh, now we've got to show it to people. We can't just be self-congratulatory anymore. And, you know, so we showed it to people last night and their response was warm. You know, as with any preview, there's a couple of things that we need to address. That's great. And, uh, yeah, so we were really pleased. Now... Jane, I want to um, run something by you. I um, The last time I went to a preview of a play, because I, I, I usually try to avoid previews, opening nights, go halfway through a season, see a show when it's settled in, found its feet. But I went to the preview of Patricia Cornelius's last play, Shit, um, and saw her at that preview. Um, and she was saying that she was so glad the preview worked because the dress rehearsal had been completely flat and she was terrified. She thought, <laughs> thought she'd written a dud. Does this happen a lot to playwrights? Um, uh, I I guess it can. I mean, for me, I was really fortunate because we had a good dress rehearsal and a good preview, so I didn't really have any of those um, fears. But I think it's nice for the preview to be great, but for you to feel that there's still a bit of a peak for you to reach. Okay. So talk to us about Cuckoo. Uh, It's a dark comedy. Uh, Already I'm intrigued because I kind of finding that balance between kind of drama and humour is something that always intrigues me in a work. Um, And it involves, what, a a missing son and a a stranger who turns up who may or may not be him? Have I got the the gist right? Yeah, it's uh, about a couple who have really been, um, they're in a relationship and they've been probably living in a a bit of a stasis. Um, Their child uh, is, they've, they've lost, their child is, is missing. And um, then one night, a very strange, enigmatic young man turns up at the front door and says he's been in a bike accident and really proceeds to turn their life upside down um, the whole time uh, while asking for toast. So (laughs) there is kind of a balance. It is very... uh, it's, It's kind of... I mean, I've kind of described it as a bit of a comedy slash mystery slash tragedy and I think that balance is hard to achieve but I I hope that that's what's in the what's in the script because I think life is a bit like that so if that is the the balance that's in the script Jane and uh, I think then Alice that makes your job all the more difficult because you've got to find the it different walks, nuanced tones it and walks a really really fine line and I think that's what I love about uh one of the things I that I look for when I want to direct something is that level of challenge is certainly completely present with Jane's writing and um but uh, the comedy uh, comedy to my mind needs to pack a punch and this certainly and absolutely does it kind of is it's very it's a truthful kind of uh representation of a, a relationship on stage that's been torn apart by loss and grief and and what happens when People need to believe something, really, really need to believe something to survive. And yet for all that, that seems, you know, very sad and dark, but for all that, there's parts... This is Jane's extraordinary talent. There's parts that you just laugh out loud. That's at the ridiculous and the surrealness of... of 
lies. Well, we, as the, the old adage goes, there's a fine line between comedy and tragedy, and it's often Indeed. used to criticise bad comedy. But the, <laughs> the fact that within the darkest moments of, of, uh, of life, there is still... It's that classic thing, sometimes you just have to laugh, other, otherwise you cry. So to, to take a tragic scenario about loss and switch it into, into comedy, was that a challenge? Uh, it was probably a challenge that I really wasn't aware of. I didn't really... I don't think that I realised... Um, and this sounds really strange when you think of the subject matter, but I don't... I, I just... I wrote it. I wrote it kind of very... Um, once I once I had the moment where the um, young man turns up at the door, it just seemed to take on a life of its own. And so I don't think that I had a conscious awareness of how kind of dark it was, which... I just wrote it, and then you know it was it was there was comic elements in it, but the darkness just sort of seemed to materialise through that. And I often think that's what happens with, you know, you put the a, a comic lens on something, and you can often really bring into kind of really sharp relief the the tragedy behind it. So it wasn't conscious, but I, I think it just kind of. It happened. And then presumably when you sat back to reread what an early draft, that's when you realised the, the balancing act that you were doing and then you had to refine that. Yeah, and I think and then once we had a reading last year and once I saw that, I became kind of acutely aware of it. And then as we've been sort of working through this production, and I think this is the great thing about working with, you know, a great director and um, wonderful actors, is that you see the play afresh as if you hadn't written it, you know, in a sense. You see different things in it every time you see it. It's one of the fun things for me, uh, going back and reading something that I may have written a year or two ago, for example, going, did I actually write that line? I don't remember that <laughs> yeah. at all. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's slightly frightening sometimes as well because, it, you know, if I didn't write it, who did? <laughs> Who's been creeping into my house in the middle it's, of the it's night? It's actually typing. quite confronting sometimes when you think, oh, my God, that came... I, don't, I didn't realise that that was, you know, as, as dark or as it is. Alice, in terms of bringing to life this this judicious blend of tragedy and comedy and, and throwing it into relief, talk to us about how you approach a work like this. Do you begin by kind of just literally sitting down and breaking up elements of the play in your mind going, this has to punch uh, with tragedy, that line then following it up with... No, I don't... Look, I don't approach things like that. I... Um to reveal a, my process always starts with a lot of talking, a lot of talking, a lot of talking to the playwright, and I've been really lucky because Jane's been in the room throughout the whole process, um, and I think the actors have really benefited from that as well. But I begin with a lot of talking with the actors, so we kind of, before we start uh, get on our hind legs and start to work the material, we're really on the same page about um, our thoughts and observations impressions of it and that keeps um you know we keep digging into layers along the way but in terms of of course as a director you do design moments or you emphasize moments or you take down there's a topography to the work but often that's revealed on the way and it's revealed to me always through collaboration with people I'm not a director that goes in with a plan and some chess pieces and goes this is how it has to be I would much when 
when I get my creative team together, we work together. And I really love the collaborative aspect. And so having Jane along for the ride has been amazing. Now, Alice, you, you used the phrase having Jane in the room for the whole process. It had made you luckies. For some directors, that would be a nightmare prospect, having the writer breathing over the shot to go, no, 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 you need to emphasise that line differently or whatever. But well, no, that's absolutely true. And I've certainly worked with a couple of writers uh, along the way that you've wanted to hurt (laughs) (laughs) not mentioning Um, any names (laughs) I'm sure they've wanted to hurt me back but uh, you know not that I'm a combative person I'm not but um, uh, look I think if when you find a really rich working process between director and writer I think you're incredibly lucky you know in the arts we make you know, we have short, intense relationships with people. So once you find somebody that you work with uh, really well, you want to leap on them and get them in a headlock and go, don't leave me ever. <laughs> so that's how I feel about Jane. <laughs> Feelings mutual. <laughs> Jane, given that Cuckoo is a, a new play, do you think it, it is more beneficial for it to have this kind of working relationship with a director like Alice so that you really are collaboratively shaping the, the fine aspect of the work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is a new play and I'm very much a writer that um, I don't really think I know what I have in a play until I've had actors and a director work on it so that's a part of the process that I that I really embrace and I think for a new work like this it's really critical because, you know, I see things in the work in their hands that I would never have seen myself, things that, that are good, bad, that I need to, you know, work on. You know, it's like, I guess, oh, what I imagine it would be like hearing a piece of music played, you know, you, you can hear where it's out of tune and where you need to do some work. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's critical. The play is called Cuckoo by Jane Miller and is on at 45 downstairs. Opening night is tonight, uh, running through until the 26th of July. Uh, Tuesdays to Saturdays, 8pm. Sundays at 6pm, running for approximately 90 minutes with no interval. And I said the venue 45 downstairs, which, if you've not been before, is at 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne. Down uh, a couple of long flights of stairs, but it is a wheelchair-accessible venue. You need to ring the uh, and organise that. Chat to the people. Uh, at the box office when you call 9662-9966 if you have accessibility issues. Um, uh, you can also book online at 45downstairs.com. It is one of my favourite venues in Melbourne, I have to say, 45 uh, Downstairs. It's wonderful Fantastic. to work there and it's so supportive. Mary Lou is just brilliant in that regard. And I love when you... I've worked there a few times now. You know, this might be a secret for some people, but when you bump out, she makes you sandwiches. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. They're, the whole team there are just amazing. And it's a, a, in some ways a challenging space to work with, given that it, you've got that kind of long backdrop of windows, for example. You've got yeah. pillars in the room. I always love visiting the space to see how different how directors and different it, makers yeah. Yeah, adapt to, uh, and, and use that space to their advantage. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, It can be a, a, like a huge barn of a place, but um, we've managed to make quite an intimate um, show. So yeah, I hope you, I hope you can come along and tell me what you think. I look forward to checking out Cuckoo by Jane Miller at Forty Five Downstairs. As I said, on from uh, on now, opening tonight until the twenty sixth of July. Bookings Forty Five Downstairs dot com or nine double six two double nine double six. Jane and Alice, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks thank so you. much, Richard.
as I said just before that track, that was the Twilight Sad. It never was the same. They're uh, an outfit from Scotland, uh, and that's taken from their fourth album, Nobody Wants to Be Here and Nobody Wants to Leave. Hmm. Um, I was going to try and think of some witty segue from uh, the name of that album title talking about the next production that we're going to discuss. Uh, We Get It by Elbow Room. But my brain is not working. I clearly need more coffee. So instead of witty segues, you just get a slightly awkward introduction to my next guests who join me in the studio now. Uh, Co-founder and uh, of Elbow Room, an independent theatre company, and also co-director and performer in the company's latest work, which is called We Get It. Emily Tomlins, good morning. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Oh, very great pleasure. Um, and also joining us, Rachel Perks, who is the co-writer, or one of the co-writers of We Get It. How's it going? Very well, thank you, Richard. That, I'm just going to turn your microphone up slightly. Okay. <laughs> no, still... Ah. Not, not audible? Try that one. Hello. That's much better. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, clearly I need more coffee. I'm just the wrong microphones on. Um, so, look, We Get It is obviously it's Elbow Room's latest work. For people not familiar with Elbow Room as a company, um, independent theatre mob who uh, have, let's say, uh, tackled science fiction, have tackled cults and cultism, um, uh, have uh, looked at punk rock bands from Brisbane. So a div- div- diverse styles of work and themes of work. What connects them all, Emily? Um, I guess uh, the reason why we started the company was because we really wanted to talk about things that are important to us. We wanted to use uh, the platform of, of independent theatre to talk about things that perhaps um, aren't talked about often on our main stages. Um, and our little kind of tagline, I guess, is that we, uh, we talk about um, big ideas in small spaces um, so, you know, we're, we're always wanting to tackle, you know, things that interest us and we're passionate about and are important to us. So uh, all of those things have been, and this one is too. Yeah. yeah. So the new show is uh, is talking about ideas that I have been talked about a lot in the theatre sector. Absolutely. Over the last, particularly over the last five to, to eight years. Yeah. Uh, which is the role of women in theatre and women on stage. Yeah. Um, and in traditional elbow room style, somewhat turning that idea on its head. Yes. Uh, yeah. So without giving too much away, um, the the show explores the idea of uh, a competition. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we wanted to look at... Uh, the representations of of women um, in in theatre and you know in a wider context as well, um, but you know theatre is is our thing and it's also our love, um, and so. But also something that you perhaps have a love hate relationship, given some of the the history of women in theatre and the yeah, way absolutely. women have been presented. Well, I mean, yeah, hate's a, a strong word, but I guess that's probably accurate in in some <laughs> forms. I mean, it's. I, you know, it's an interesting thing. When we started this um, process, we were we did a creative development with the, uh, all of the women who are involved in this, um, and we talked. We sat around and talked about, you know, what how we grew up and, and what we loved when we were growing up in theatre. And we these women that we explore were the women that we were excited about as, as little girls and wanted to play. Um, but as we delved into them more and more, we saw that they were either incomplete or they were treated uh, by theatre 
in a certain way. So they were represented in a certain way and they were reduced. And so we wanted to explore that reduction and that treatment um, and, yes, turn it on its head, question it and use it as a platform to question uh, how, you know, how we treat and see women in a, in a wider context. And, you know, in, the, in these days, in the, in the kind of uh, context of, you know, social media and, uh, you know, saturation of, of media and online content, um, we also wanted to kind of go into that realm as well because it's getting scarier and scarier. And I think, you know, yeah, it's, it's something that's talked about a lot and I think it needs to be talked about. Mm. Rachel, in terms of the, I guess, the canon, the theatrical canon and its representation of women, mm. tell us about some of the, the female characters that you've touched on in that creative development and, that, and how that has influenced the script that has eventuated. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so we kind of asked the female performers who were taking part in the show to talk about the roles that they grew up wanting to play. Um, and it was really interesting seeing their responses. Um, some of the women sort of had, you know, these epic three-page lists of all, you know, every every Shakespeare role and, and every Ibsen and every Chekhov and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and some of the women, because we have a kind of a, a diverse range of women from different backgrounds, um, talking about actually growing up and realising that, that, that none of those roles would ever be for them because they identify, because they come from different ethnic backgrounds and they just know that, you know, the way that the way that roles are cast, those sort of roles are cast, they're very, very infrequently cast as women of colour. Um, so sort of growing up and going, well, actually, you know... I was never even kind of allowed the space to dream that that I would be able to play one of those characters, uh, so that became that's become a big idea. Yeah, it's gone into the show, um, and I think that you know that will be really interesting for people coming to the show and seeing that and being confronted with the fact that these women are being played, these sort of big roles are being played in our production by Mm. women of colour and how unusual and how sort of confounding that process might be of watching that for the first time. So are we talking roles like, uh, I don't know, uh, Juliet, Hedda Gabler... Cleopatra. Close. <laughs> Do we, are uh, are no, we telling them? No. Okay, cool. Um, but, but some of those classic... No. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, we... we uh, we touch on Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at uh, Medea. Um, we look at um, Nora from A Doll's House. Um, and, yeah, there are a couple of others in there as well. So, so we'll yeah. keep some surprises. Yeah, yeah. Surprises. <laughs> but so clearly then this is a work which is interrogating theatre. It's not just a stage production that people will come and see. It is a work Absolutely. that is questioning the, the act of making theatre and questioning who is excluded from acting on our stages. Absolutely, yeah, and whose stories so. are excluded mm-hmm. in in you know in that respect then too in turn um so yeah absolutely and I guess that's something that um as you know as a company elbow room always like to you to do is to use theatre in a way where we can also interrogate the machinery that we're using and we're within so um Absolutely, and and this, you know, it, we we're very excited to be a part of the the neon platform, and we always uh, also kind of realised that being a part of that meant that we could reach maybe a wider audience than we might normally in our kind of little independent theatre spaces, um, and it might be a chance to yeah to to actually uh, look at this that this thing that we exist in this this theatre malarkey and. 
<laughs> um, and pull it apart a little bit, mm. um, you know. But, yeah, in doing so, we hope that, that people come along on the ride uh, with us because it's certainly going to be a fun one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we've tried very much so to frame it within, like, you know, we're questioning those ideas in a very sort of playful, yeah. uh, comedic way because we're having, we want to have fun while we're doing it. And, um, yeah, to try and kind of poke fun at these ideas while also, you know, they can... We're doing it on several levels where it's it is comedic, but it also is sort of you know affecting you on an intellectual level and making you question things and perhaps um, causing people to spark ideas that they might things that they might not have originally questioned. It's that old th- uh, idea of the the spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. To to quote uh, what is it, Mary Poppins? <laughs> yes. um, yeah, you can. Not necessarily sugarcoating something, but you make it palatable through comedy, mm. uh, and it's a gr- it really is one of the best ways to explore ideas that in a, could otherwise challenge people and and make them too uncomfortable that they don't yeah. want to engage with those ideas. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, and I mean we we're we're a part of this thing, you know, we're we're inside it, and we're we don't want to leave it. It's something mm. that we're really passionate about. It's it's uh, it's the thing that we do, mm. um, and when I say this thing, I mean theatre. So you know, we we want to celebrate it as well as interrogate it. So you know, and and I think you know theatre more than a lot of other mediums and art forms uh, is is a, a really kind of uh, special uh, thing because it it's the one place where we actually have to sit in a room together and breathe the same air and hear how other people are reacting and how other people are being moved by something. You know, the, as I said, you know, we, with this kind of online world that we exist in now, there's so many opportunities where you can sit behind a screen and judge someone but not ever have to to acknowledge them as a human being. So that's what I really love about theatre. So we, you know, we really want to encourage people to be there together and to experience this together and see see what that does to their heads and their hearts. I love the magic of the communal space that is theatre. The fact that, yeah. uh, as you say. It, 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 it's so easy to, to sit at the desk, sit, sit in your lounge room with a phone, kind of mediate the world through a screen, right. uh, which in the cases, uh, the online experience for a lot of women then exposes them to an enormous amount of gendered abuse. Exactly. Um, whereas so kind of stepping away from the screen, stepping into the theatre and listening to other people laugh, listening to the to the indrawn breath or the, mm. or the quiet... Yes, kind of, uh, that that you get when when you are part of a communal experience. That's one of the magic things about it. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing that for me that intrigues me enormously about the shows that are presented as part of MTC's neon season of independent theatre, mm-hmm. which I know is a problematic model in its way um, uh, for people, and I don't want to get into the details of that right now. But one of the things that I find fascinating about neon is the fact that fifty percent of people t- buying tickets to neon shows have never been to an MTC production before. Yeah. So it's bringing the indie audience into the main stage, and then it is yes, bringing the the classic older MTC subscriber to see works by. Kind of Melbourne Independent Theatre Company. So that crossover is really quite special. Yeah, I th- we're really excited about that, you know. Like, I, I, th- I think that's going to be a really interesting factor in this and and the and the different experiences and different expectations that those, those different audience members bring to it, mm. I think will be a really interesting and exciting kind of clash too. So. And, and something that we have been kind of, that we have made a, a very important um, point of focus for us is that 
we are speaking about the experience of working as theatre professionals and the way that, um, you know, sexism in our industry has affected us. Um, But we are also kind of hoping that through that framework we can open it up so that the ideas are broad enough that people who don't have that experience can still see themselves in that experience and can understand and relate to ways that that sexism has affected them in their workplaces or in their, you know, interpersonal relationships or whatever. Well, the fact that uh, Marcel Dorney, the the co-artistic director of the company, co-director of this work has referenced the the whole the title you know we get it of mm. course i'm a man i know that, that sexism's bad and but then actually feeling it empathizing with it in the way that theater allows us to feel someone else's experience and pain mm. is yeah i think will pr- hopefully be significant for for many of the people in the audience myself included yeah i i really hope so yeah i mean the yeah the title comes from from something that i experienced a lot as as a young woman where i wanted to talk about these issues and i would have even really well meaning uh, people both men and women women who would go okay okay we get it we get it let's let's move on can we talk about something else but it's clear that we you know we have to keep talking about this and I think you know Marcel when we were talking about this also kind of went wow I've done that too mm-hmm. I've I've said that exact thing you know um so it's it's not about kind of it's not about blame it's it's not about um you know us and them it's about us all you know kind of coming together and going okay w- what can we do how can we make this better where where does this happen in my life how do I relate to this um and we certainly don't have you know any of the kind of hard and fast answers to this but we want to raise some questions and we want to spark some some fires and some bellies and see where that where that takes people from there Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. The production is called We Get It by Elbow Room, presented as part of MTC's Neon Festival of Independent Theatre, previewing tonight, opening tomorrow night, and then running through until the 19th of July, Tuesdays and Saturday, Tuesdays through Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sundays at 4pm. Tickets just 25 bucks, and the, the drinks at the bar at the MTC are discounted for yeah. Neon as well. <laughs> um, you can book by going to mtc.com.au or by picking up the phone and calling 86 866- double eight oh eight double oh uh and the production is being staged in the Lawler uh, at the the Lawler Theatre at MTC's South Bank Theatre, 140 South Bank Boulevard. Oddly enough, in South Bank, as its name <laughs> suggests. So uh, mtc.com.au for more information about Elbow Rooms. We get it opening tomorrow night. Uh, we've been chatting with Emily and Rachel. It's been a pleasure having you both in the studio. Thank you, Richard. I look Thanks forward to much. seeing the show tomorrow night. Hooray! <laughs> Speaking of talent, Melbourne boasts a lot of it. Uh, sometimes you have to pay for it. But with the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, it's free for the most part. You get to stroll up and down Gertrude Street in Fitzroy uh, from dusk till late into the chilly winter evening, admiring the work of projection artists as they kind of whack up images on the Housing Commission, flats, on pubs, in shop windows, onto footpaths and more. One of the fun things about the festival is as, as artists refine their
their work. Instead of the huge, big picture, they sometimes just do really small little works that you actually have to keep an eye out for. It's almost a, kind of like a, a challenge to spot some of them. Joining us to tell us more about this year's Gertrude Street Projection Festival is Festival Director Nikki Pastor. Nikki, welcome. How are you? Hi. Hi. Good, thank you. Just um, getting amongst it. We're still installing, so getting it all ready for tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah, I was strolling down Gertrude Street last night on my way home. Yeah, and, uh, you would have seen some sneaky... Um, sneaky tests. Yeah, yeah, tests, yeah. Yeah. So for people who've never been to the Gertrude Street Projection Festival before, what is it that's unique about it? Because projected and images and light-based art has now become quite a thing. You've got Vivid mm. Live with its projections. You've got White Night Melbourne. The projections are a big part of that. Um, Adelaide Festival uh, earlier this year had a big projection component. Brisbane Festival coming up in uh, a couple of months will also have a big outdoor projection component. What is it about Gertrude Street Projection Festival that is unique? Well, I suppose because we're restricted by being on Gertrude Street, we're involving the different community organisations that are around that area. So we've got, like, the Artful Dodgers, we've got the community groups in Atherton Gardens, Yarra Youth Services, as well as the restaurants and um, different artists that live locally. So that's kind of why we're unique. And utilising all those different spaces is kind of special as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh how much negotiation has to go into uh, organising the festival months in advance? Because I'm just thinking uh, to some shops might be, f- particularly ones that have been on the street for several years, are like, oh, the projection festival. Yeah, yes, you can have access to our upstairs room and put a projector in the window shining on a building on the other side of the street. That's fine. Yeah. But for some of the newer businesses, is it a challenge to get them on board? Um, it's, it kind of is, but it just um, it's negotiation. It, d- it does evolve every year depending on what is available. But like um, Rose Chong's, she organises her own every year, which is amazing. And this year, for the second time running, she's got Skunk Control. So you might remember that from last year. It had um, the light the colourful kind of installation that was a bit different to a usual projection screen. So I know the curtain's up now and it will be unveiled tomorrow at 6. I look forward to the reveal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, as I said earlier, there are big, large-scale projections Mm -hmm. and so every year projecting onto the the Atherton Gardens estate, the Housing uh, Commission building, for example. But there does seem to be more of a focus year by year on smaller scale, more intimate, more focused works. Yeah, we definitely like uh, mixing it up a bit. Um, so Nick Azidis always has his projections on the Atherton Gardens, but we've also got him working with Gulad, who's a resident of the garden, uh, of the estate. Um, so he'll be projecting Gulad um, Abuwasi's uh, work onto the estate. And that's part of our mentorship program. Another project we're running as part of the mentorship is Rob Jordan's, which is um, Pulse TV. And so he's made these devices where you'll find them in the alleyway um, next to Tripitaco. And they're tiny little devices, which you kind of have to investigate and find, where you put your fingers on the pulse sensors and it um, changes the the signals for the video um, signals. Okay. So, yeah, that's something a little bit more intimate and, you know, might change throughout the festival as well, the location. So we'll have to like let people know through social media. Okay. Um, and also you're doing something with 7th Gallery this year. Yeah, the new Vanguard exhibition. So that's more contemporary projection. So not necessarily screen-based work. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now this is the 8th Gertrude Street Projection Festival. Yeah. It's become quite a mainstay uh, of Fitzroy in some ways. I, again, living in the area, it's fascinating the way that, to use that arts industry phrase, the way it activates the street. <laughs> yeah, especially in wintertime. Like people ask us, why do you do it in the day? 
dead of winter. And one reason is because it gets darker earlier, but also because there's not much else going on. So it's kind of a good excuse to come out and, um, you know, go have a drink or have something to eat along Gertrude Street, wander up and down and, yeah, just activates the space at a different time. You mentioned the mentorship part of the of the festival program uh, how has that been operating and are you then hoping that the artists involved uh, who are being mentored will then go on to to become mainstays of the festival perhaps in in another few years time yeah definitely um so i suppose over the eight years we've we've had that kind of mentorship where we've had an artist liaison work with all the different artists that are involved in order to create their um, particular installation but this year we were lucky enough to get some creative victoria funding to actually have that one-on-one um, project development and so these artists have um, created four new projects for the festival that hopefully will extend to our festival next year or to other um, art exhibitions throughout the year and we'll, we'll try and help them with that kind of facilitation as well. Are you allowed to have favourites? <laughs> I know, so <laughs> no I don't have a favourite. Um, for the last few years I have worked on the, the hub, the festival hub at Catfish, which kind of is my favourite place to go to, and I will be found there every every day, kind of checking out what's going on there. Um, but yeah, so I can't I can't say favourites, that's not fair. Of course not, no, it's like asking a, a mother to choose, or a father <laughs> yeah. to choose their favourite child. I love them all evenly. Uh, so uh, the Catfish is the festival hub, that's the bar at 30 Gertrude Street, up near the, uh, I was going to, well the top end of Gertrude Street, but yeah. the, the west end of Gertrude yeah. Street, up closer towards the forgotten uh, end of Gertrude Street. Not so much forgotten anymore. No. It's becoming very, very busy. Yeah, so. we try and kind of evenly spread it out, but there are less sites up that end just because of that, you know, finding a place to put a projector. So then we thought, it, you know, if you start at Smith Street, or walk all the way up to Nicholson and end up at the Hub, it's kind of a, a nice night out. That works. Now, uh, as well as the events that are happening out in the streets, there are a couple of other additional events, uh, one of which uh, is a ticketed event, 50 bucks per ticket, because it's a workshop. It's a hands-on, build-your-own DIY video FX device. So tell us more. So <laughs> I don't know the um, really the tech specifications of it, but you'll be making a device which you can take away with you. So that fifty dollars includes the de- the, VG- the video mixing device that you'll create. So it'll be soldering it all together, um, hosted by Rob Jordan. Um, yeah, definitely. There's still tickets available, so jump on that. And you can, if you don't want to take home a device, it's only ten dollars for the presentation. Okay. If you would like to know more about the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, jump online www.gs pf.com.au gspf.com.au The Gertrude Street Projection Festival is running from tomorrow night, the 10th of July through to the 19th of July each night from 6pm till midnight along Gertrude Street Fitzroy It really is fascinating watching the street kind of come to life, the, the groups of people strolling along late at night, checking out the work and quite large crowds some nights as well on the on the, the uh, less frigid evenings. Yeah, hopefully tomorrow night won't be um, too cold so that will be one of our biggest definitely come down and there will be lots of different free events happening at Mesa and in the Athena Gardens there's an art box truck and then up at Catfish lots to see so uh, as I said the website will give you some more details about the artists and where you can find their work www.gspf.com.au we've been talking to festival director Nikki Pastor thank you for joining us thank you so much
guests. Richard Watts taking you through until midday today. Uh, my final guest for the morning has joined me in the studio. Steinar Ellingson is the festival director of Melbourne Web Fest, which is a somewhat unique festival that celebrates series that are created online. So webisodes, um, self-contained short TV programs that instead of having to get a bu- huge budget and lots of co-producers and get it screened on a TV network or on, uh, you can just shoot it yourself and put it online. Steiner, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me, Richard. My very great pleasure. So uh, how long has Melbourne Web Fest been running for now? This is the third year this year, yeah. So it's a short but um, um, standing tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully a tradition that will continue to grow as more and more people with ideas and visions realise that yeah, they can just shoot it themselves and put it online instead of having to go through all the rigmarole of getting presenting partners and getting funding and, and et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of the, the spirit, I think, that's really incredible in in this sort of uh, community and and we often refer to as a as a global movement if you like because it is um you know if the story is good people will watch it they will love it if, if your story is good you can compete with high budget you know because i think one of the things with web series especially is that the internet is so big that you can find a big audience for the most niche stories that are out there we don't have to have those one-size-fits-all kind of approaches to storytelling that you often see on broadcast and probably especially free-to-air TV. So, so one of the things that fascinates me about making work like this is the the fact that, as you say, it can be incredibly niche um, and it can be kind of, uh, so easily accessible, though, because we now live in a world where so many people are used to watching work on a handheld device, being mm-hmm. be it a, um, a tablet or a phone, uh, or they've got their computer plugged into the TV in the lounge room. So they're instead of channel surfing they kind of youtube surfing or or what have you so it it really it's kind of it really seems that technology has completely facilitated the making of independent stories i think you're absolutely right it's uh and uh, you know we, we see that as well and i think there's what's probably changed a bit for us this year as well is that two years ago or in 2013 when we had our first festival there were the content was you know largely made by people who were Trying to get a foot into the in, into the door in the industry, sort of. Thing. It was their calling card, essentially. It's yeah. kind of like, look at the web series I made. Now give me a job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas now you're actually seeing pe- other people coming to the web with a past in broadcast, for example, and it's not that uncommon anymore that people that have uh, had a career in film, had a career in TV, are now experimenting with uh, with web productions because. Um, do you think they find it as an avenue to tell the stories that they can't tell in in uh, in their day job. I, I, I was going to ask whether yeah. it's, is that because people have just been laid off uh, in the, in the industry because of the economic climate, or as no. but clearly no, it's because um, it gives them more scope and more freedom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's that's exactly it. And, and uh, you know, we hear that with uh, did an interview um, earlier this week with Tony Rogers, for example, who's the director and the co-creator of How to Talk Australians, and and uh, Tony, you know, he. Created created uh, Wilfred, which was a relatively successful TV series, and, and he's now really, really embraced the web uh, as, a, as a new storytelling platform and an outlet for a lot of the creativity, I suppose, that, that he couldn't find a home for on, on TV. And it's a 
different approach to storytelling because, you know, you write comedy for TV for a half-hour episode. It's something completely different to deliver all the jokes in, in, in the space of five minutes, you know. Uh, so he's completely embraced it and, uh, and that's really great. So the audience who attends Melbourne Web Fest, are they predominantly makers or are they predominantly viewers who are just who just want to see more material and perhaps a more social environment? I think we see a good mix of both, which is, you know, extremely heartwarming for, <laughs> for yours truly and, and the rest of the people who are putting this on, obviously. I mean, it is we do see a lot of creators, obviously, because it is about their work. So they all come with their crews and, uh, and attend, uh, you know, we have a whole day of industry development, masterclasses, that sort of thing, which is obviously targeted at the content creators. But we do also um, we do also really try to be a festival that's for general public. So, you know, there's so much work, there's so much video that you can watch online. There's just no way you're going to be able to see it all. You know, So you can come to Melbourne Web Fest and it's a curated forum where you can come and see some of the best stuff that's out there. You know, so we provide that for people. We don't screen it all, obviously, but we screen um, a select uh, episode or two and then say, yeah, if you're intrigued, go watch the rest online. Go home and watch the rest of everything. Quite possibly on the tram on the way home yeah, yeah. with your phone. Yeah, absolutely. But having said that, we do also have, you know, there are series which, which have really high production quality as well in there. We have one Australian series, you know, it's not all made for handheld devices, which is probably another thing why it's so exciting because it's such an eclectic mix uh, where there's there's a couple of sci-fi series especially Australian series made one's called Airlock and it's just released this week in full and it's you know 20 minute episodes extremely high production quality it's probably from the top of my head one of the biggest budgets that have um, um, uh, the biggest budget web series made in Australia to date. So, um, yeah, it's extremely high production qualities, great storytelling, and uh, I don't mean to single out any one series, but, you know, there is both that stuff where you can have a laugh on the tram and also those really deep, engaging, emotional uh, narratives, I suppose, set in space as well. I'm intrigued. I'm yeah. very intrigued. Um, so uh, is there... T- Obviously, Melbourne is a is a large city, and one of the challenges with staging any festival <laughs> is trying to um, focus the activity on a certain place. And you're using uh, uh, the Edge at Federation Square, I believe, is one of your yes. main venues. Yes, that was uh, last year. We had the the main public events there, so we had the opening night and the awards, as well as some some screenings. So this year, we've, uh, we're really happy to to have most of like all the big events are held there so we're there for the whole weekend opening night um tomorrow gee it's tomorrow um and screenings all day saturday um screenings all day sunday broken up with a discussion panel with some of the most prominent um, uh, web series creators in in australia and also the the award show with uh with auntie donna which will be an absolute hoot. And, um, yeah, so that's we're very excited to be in that space, obviously. It's 
phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, for more information about Melbourne Webfest, which is running from the 10th to the 12th of July, not surprisingly, you can jump online, melbournewebfest.com, where you'll find the two, the full 2015 program. Um, uh, there's a networking event kicking off tonight, um, and then the festival proper running over Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Um, there's a range of screenings, um, and panels uh, you can pick up a festival pass uh, which gives you access to everything but the industry development day and that way you can see all of the work you can uh, check out screenings and panels um, uh, the gala and even the after party I believe even the after party that's going to be all that- kinds of fun <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at a festival pass it's just 90 bucks or 75 concession or you can buy individual tickets for specific events by going as I said to melbournewebfest.com um, I guess, look, as a, as a perhaps a wrap-up question, Stoner, given that this is the third year of the festival, do you know if people came along, to, say, the first year, just as, as, a, as a punter, as a member of the public, going, oh, I want to find out a little bit more, and have since graduated onto making their own web series? Yes, I do actually, for a fact, know that that's happened. And uh, uh, and it's also, you know, it's, it's incredible to see also that we have people now this year, because we've been going for three years, who are returning with either, you know, season two of, of the series that were in the first year or, or maybe even a new project, which is really, really incredible. Um, and we see that, you know, the creators as well are just developing, developing their business models, they're developing their storylines. We've got this amazing presentation on opening night with uh, a guy who had a um, a series in in the first um, Melbourne Webfest who's since created a startup uh, it's a transmedia digital studio where he's built this storytelling platform um, and, and, and really enriched a narrative into a, a digital 3d platform game and a comic book and he's got a whole new business model for how he's going to cre- monetize the content so you know it's one of those things things I think that has that kind of for the tech savvy content creator it's going to be something amazing in terms of like wow I'm going to you know learn a lot from this guy and for, for other people general public it's just a project that's going to absolutely blow you away Fantastic. so yeah that's you know it's, it's really fun to see those developments like I said you know person who came and experienced it in the first year and went wow I'm going to try and, and make one of these to looking at the people who were already making them and see how far they've come in such a short amount of time. That must be incredibly satisfying. Oh, look, we, yeah, absolutely. It's such an exciting space to be operating in at the moment because things are just developing so quickly. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Melbourne Webfest is running from the 10th to the 12th of July uh, and screening 51 uh, of the best web series from around the globe, including 23 from Australia, plus panels, industry events, parties and a gala awards night. Uh, more information at www.melbournewebfest.com. If you are a Triple R subscriber, we have a festival, a, a double festival pass to give away, which gives you access to everything save for the industry day, which means you get to all the screenings, uh, panels, conversations, discussions, and a party or two, which is also a bonus. So if you are a subscriber uh, and would like to win a, a double festival pass to Melbourne Webfest, 93881027 is the number to call. We'll take a call at random. Uh, Steiner, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I hope the festival is once again a great success. Thank you so much, Richard.
In its mo- it's time for me to go in uh, about four minutes, so many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning. I'm going to let Silver Ray finish us out, and then uh, Get Down will be coming along, uh, hosted this week by Dan Keeley, so he'll be joining you in about four minutes' time. I did just want to let you know, before I go, that Triple R is presenting Oh Mercy live to air during Test Pattern on uh, Wednesday, the 15th of July. When We Talk About Love is the fourth album and recent Triple R album of the week from Melbourne indie pop quartet Oh Mercy, led by singer-songwriter Alex Gow. You can catch them live to air in the Triple R performance space during Test Pattern, 6.25pm on Wednesday, the 15th of July. If you're a Triple R subscriber, give us a call right now, 93881027. I've got four double passes to give away to Oh Mercy live in the Triple R performance space next week. And as I said, I'm going to uh, fade Silver Ray back up and uh, let it take us out for the last couple of minutes of the show. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.